0: If you would, you can uh, turn open to Zechariah chapter 1. We are going to uh, do from verse 7 on to the end of the chapter, verse 7 through verse 21 this morning. Uh, This is a series that will, will remind us of all the things that God restores to us when we come to Him in Christ, when we are When we receive new life in Christ, we repent of our sins and we trust Christ for salvation. God restores all of these things to us, but he does it uniquely with his own people as a a picture of what he will do in our lives as well. But we watch in how he's promising his people to restore them in his place in Jerusalem. And that's where we we pick up uh, in this passage. Uh, There are just quick history lesson. Going from uh, Mount Sinai. Mount Sinai, you've got God has his people there, and he gives them the Ten Commandments, and he says, I'm going to bring you into a land, and it's going to be flowing with milk and honey. It's going to be great. Olive orchards are all around. They rebel. They don't have faith, so he says, we've got to wait a little while. He waits 40 years. And then they go into the promised land, and they cross the Jordan. And that's when they go around Jericho. The walls fall down, and they occupy the land. And they occupy that land, and things are going decently okay. The book of Judges says that everybody was doing what was right in their own eyes. And then they finally say, give us a king. He says, why, I'm your king. But Samuel's trying to tell them, why are you telling God this? Give us a king. We want to be like the other nations. God says, Samuel, it's okay, because I'm going to use this, because ultimately... I'm going to use their king to show them that there's an eternal king, that it will be over them. And then a the king, uh, Saul, is raised up. He's faithless. Then David comes, and David is anointed king, and, he, and God promises David to have a line forever. And Jesus is from David's line, so he is the eternal king. But after, David, Solomon comes in, and Solomon's faithless, and God says, all right, I'm going to keep a small segment around Jerusalem. It's going to be called Judah. I'm going to keep that around you. Judah's going to follow you. Benjamin will be with you. But everybody else, I'm going to take them and give them to somebody else. So there were two kingdoms. There was a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. A bunch of uh, wicked kings in the north and a bunch of faithful and wicked kings in the south. And finally, God says, enough. You're not trusting me. And he he has Assyria come in 722. And Assyria comes to the northern kingdom and disperses them. And then the Babylonians come under Nebuchadnezzar. And they come to the southern kingdom in 587. And they take everybody away and they disperse everybody. So God scatters everybody, uses the Assyrians, and he uses the Babylonians to do that. It's 70 years that the land would have its rest because of the faithlessness of the people. So now we're coming. Exiles are returning. And they're returning, and that's what Zechariah, Haggai before him, Zechariah, is speaking into that context. So we pick up in verse 7. On the 24th day of the 11th month, which is the month of Shabbat, in the second year of Darius, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Zechariah, the son of Berechiah, son of Edo, saying, I saw in the night, and behold, a man riding on a red horse, he was standing among the myrtle trees in the glen, and behind him were red, sorrel, and white horses. Then I said, What are these, my Lord? The angel, to, the angel who talked with me said to me, I will show you what they are. So the man who was standing among the, tree, the myrtle trees answered, These are they whom the Lord has sent to patrol the earth. And they answered the angel of the Lord who were standing among the myrtle trees and said, We have patrolled the earth, and behold, all the earth remains at rest. And the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and the cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? And the Lord answered gracious and comforting words to the angel who talked with me. So the angel who talked with me said to me, Cry out, thus says the Lord of hosts, I am exceedingly jealous for Jerusalem and for Zion, and I am exceedingly angry with the nations that are at ease. For while I was angry but a little, they furthered the disaster. Therefore, thus says the Lord, I have returned to Jerusalem with mercy. My house shall be built in it, declares the Lord of hosts, and the measuring line shall be stretched out over Jerusalem. Cry out again, thus says the Lord of hosts, my city shall again overflow with prosperity, and the Lord will again comfort Zion and again choose Jerusalem. And I lifted my eyes and saw, and behold, four horns. And I said to the angel who talked with me, what are these? And he said to me, these are the horns that have scattered Judah, Israel, and Jerusalem. And the Lord showed me four craftsmen. And I said, what are these coming to do? He said, these are the horns that scattered Judah so that one, no one raised his head. And these have come to terrify them, to cast down the horns of the nations who lifted up their horns against the land of Judah to scatter it. Father, it's in passages like these that we get intimidated by your word and say, I have no idea what it's talking about. So we ask for your spirit's illumination. So we can understand you, God, because you're revealing you. You're revealing Jesus, and we want to catch that. We want it to change our lives today. We thank you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know there, there are still a few idioms around in our conversations that are biblically based that people don't realize. Uh, if you've ever heard the term, oh, how the tables have turned it's really what i did it's a little research it's attributed to the 17th century uh playing board games and it showed how you were you, you looked like you were going to win and all of a sudden you're losing and we've done that we've played board games just like oh man we would now it's we're not we were going to win we're not winning anymore but uh in the 17th century i think they were very much more biblically literate than our culture is. So I think that they were understanding that the the term turning the tables really came from Jesus going into the temple and turning the tables of the money changers and those who who sold pigeons and, and doves for the sacrifices. What did Jesus go in there and do? He changed the direction of everybody who was thinking, hey, we're doing fine. He goes in and physically turns their tables over in order to show you're not going in the right direction. The people, the money changers, and those selling sacrifices were creating an obstacle for God's people to experience His presence. And He wanted them to understand that His presence was for all. Jesus' action in them Uh, In the temple was foreshadowed in this passage because we learn that God turns the tables on Israel and their enemies. Where God has been against Israel and using the enemies to come get Israel out and Judah out, He's turning the tables. All right, I'm I'm pronouncing my love upon my people, and now my anger upon the enemies. God will turn the advantage the nations had, they enjoyed for a little while. He'll He'll turn. On them as his favor returns to Israel. these uh, two visions in this chapter that conclude this chapter begin a total of eight visions that Zechariah has in a dream in one night. I don't think he slept much that night. Each vision contains an explanation, explanation for Zechariah, and each because he's seeing something and he's asking a question, And, and that what we read here, we're going to see repeated in the next several chapters. Each will communicate a promise of God's restoration. They need explanation because they're strange. And this is why we usually avoid scripture because of these kind of things. But let's remember, uh, Mark Twain said, it's not the parts of the Bible that I don't understand that terrify me. It's the part I do understand that makes me very nervous. There's enough that we do understand, and what we do understand helps us interpret the visions and explain. Uh, They're not quickly understandable, and I think that's on purpose. Because God, in in holding all knowledge and wisdom, because he is omniscient, he uses dreams and visions uh, to peek into the unseen, eternal realm that he exists in so that we understand there's more to God and the working of his will than we can imagine. He also uses dreams and visions to remind us that he's God and we're not. He owns it all. So Today, in in this passage, the vision Zechariah received here that we're going to look at was that God's presence would be established, reestablished with his people. And we learn that the promise of his presence is established by him, is not earned and will last. See, that's the the heart of God's people, the heart of the angel saying, how long will you go with no mercy against Jerusalem? There's there's. God's pointing to an, an, an everlasting establishment of His presence. And I think we can make five observation, observations from this passage. The first is that God's mission is His presence. If someone were to ask you, what is the Bible about? What would you say? It's okay to say Jesus. Because it really is all about Jesus. It really is all about Him. But remember when it's all about jesus we have to remember what jesus said his mission was about what was jesus mission jesus mission he said my food is to do the father's will that's my food what was the father's will god's mission for jesus was for him to close the separation that sin had created so we could be reconciled to god the bible is about god taking his presence and putting it into his people by christ jesus was on a mission to get God's people in His presence forever. Let's remember the Garden of Eden. Sin caused the rebellion of Adam and Eve, causes a separation, and they uh, that we're seeing that separation by Adam and Eve in, Adam and Eve uh, feeling shame over their nakedness and their hiding as a result of that shame. Really, the first words of the gospel in the Bible are from Genesis three nine, when God says to the man, "Where are you?" He didn't leave them in that place. He didn't let them fester in their shame, but he calls out to them. Later on in the same chapter, after God pronounced the curses upon all the participants, uh, the man, the woman, and the serpent, God gave a vision of how, he could, how man could re-enter his presence. He needed, he needed a covering. Remember, uh, Adam and Eve tried to sew fig leaves together to cover their shame. Some that's man-made. We need to cover our shame in some man-made way. God kills an animal and takes the skin of the animal and clothes them both. So God is declaring in the gospel, it's a picture of what Jesus would do. You need a righteousness that's not your own, that's not man-made. You can't sew your own righteousness together and expect God to receive you. He, he needs to give you a righteousness. And all Adam and Eve did was say, okay, I'll be clothed by you. The vision of how Jesus' sacrifice would give God's people a righteousness In order to be in his presence around him. That's what the whole sacrificial system was about. It was God having a way to point to that you can only be in my righteous presence based on the death of a sacrifice. God's mission from that time, from the Garden of Eden, has been to dwell in the midst of his people. He promised Abraham a land that would be in God's presence. He established his people for his place at Mount Sinai, giving the Ten Commandments. He led them into his place by faith. He gave them the tabernacle in the middle of their dwellings. He established a kingdom for them to point to his eternal kingship. He then gave them a temple so the world would know where his presence was. Now that the temple in Zechariah's time is in ruins, God re-ups his promise for his presence. And he gives a vision of a man in the myrtle trees in the glen. I think the mission, remember, God's mission is his presence, and the mission incorporates new life. The man among the myrtle trees is a picture of the promise of God to accomplish his mission of being with his people by giving them new life. Isaiah connects myrtle trees with new life. Isaiah 41, I will put in the wilderness the cedar, the acacia, the myrtle, and the olive. And I will set in the, in the desert the cypress, the plain, and the pine together. Isaiah 55. Instead of the thorn, shall come up the cypress. Instead of the briar, shall come up the myrtle. And it shall make a name for the Lord, an everlasting sign that shall not be cut off. What's he doing? Out of wastelands, life. Out of the wilderness, out of the, the thorn and the briar comes life. Out of death comes life. God's mission is to bring new life to his people, life to what was dead. And really, think about it, he specializes in bringing dead things to life. When it looks like there's no positive outcome, God will turn the tables on that and glorify himself. He shows up in the impossible moment of our lives so we can experience his life in that moment. We experience his life as we, we weave in and out of the, just the death-tainted consequences of sin and, and uh, whether they're our, our own personal responsibility or they just happen around us. That's, that's the life that we're weaving in and out of, and God's coming to us in those moments saying, I'm your life, I'm your presence, trust me. God's promising to bring life in the glen, the ravine, the waste places and the barrennesses of our lives. And then we see horses that are reporting to the man in the glen. And they're on patrol, he said. So this is, this is God showing us, he's peeling back. Here's the army that's the unseen army that's accomplishing the mission of his presence. Now, this image is odd because when you read it carefully, if we put in there, well, look at Sorry. Verse 11. And they answered the angel of the Lord who was standing among the myrtle trees and said, we have patrolled the earth and behold, all the earth remains at rest. You know what our minds do right there? We put angelic beings or people on those horses. We're not told they were riding, anything was riding those horses. The horses talked to the man. That's odd. But that's what's happening. We we fill in blanks sometimes like, no, I had to reread that a few times. Wait a minute. I think the horses are talking. They are. The man, the man has an army of horses behind him. And we're told that they're red and sorrel, which is brown, and white horses. And they're sent to patrol the earth. And they report to the man on the red horse. These horses participate in God's accomplishing his mission on the earth. Now, we can't press the meaning of the colors too far, but I think on the surface they do show God's mission for Jesus. It's not just, I, I don't think it's a coincidence that they're red, brown, and white. Red because of the blood of Jesus that will be shed on a brown cross. And it's the whiteness of his righteousness that is the sacrifice and his resurrection. The image of this army of horses is of there. They're crisscrossing the earth to bring God's mission about. And it's the mission of Jesus that's being furthered. It also gives a glimpse into the mission of God uh, that, that lives in the unseen realms. There's always an unseen component to what's going on. We are we're not to be preoccupied by that, but we would be aware of it because our prayers and our righteous living matters in the unseen realm. We have that from scripture. And God's looking, he's, he's all this crisscrossing, God's doing something. 2 Chronicles 16 9 reminds us of that. If the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the whole earth to give strong support to those whose heart is blameless toward Him. We want, we want that army of horses behind what we're doing in our lives that it matters and we're, we're, doing, we're doing this for God because it's God who saved us and He's the one that's called us to this righteous life and He's bringing it about with the full force. It's the Lord of hosts, Remember. Then we're told that the the man, who's also called the angel, he prays to God. Verse 12, the angel of the Lord said, O Lord of hosts, how long will you have no mercy on Jerusalem and cities of Judah against which you have been angry these 70 years? The report of the patrol was that the nations are at ease, which led the angel to pray to God. We can't overlook this. Prayer is a crucial element. the mission of God. Not because God needs to be talked into compassion. That's a a misunderstanding from the Old Testament that God's just an angry being and he needs somebody somebody just to placate his anger, talk him off the ledge. Look, don't annihilate everybody. It's going to be okay. God does not need to be reminded of his love. He's fully aware of that and he's working a plan. What prayer does is connect our hearts to God's heart so we pray his heart to come about. God waits so we understand Him better. So we understand His love and pray it back to Him. When Jesus overturned the tables in the temple, He said, This place is to be called a place of prayer for the nations, but you have made it a den of robbers, a den of thieves. They were stealing from that presence rather than acknowledging this is where the whole world can come and experience God's presence angel recounted the will of God and asking him for the completion of his will. It was his will that he would be, uh, have a 70-year exile. That was God's will, and he was, it was forewarned by the prophets. But God turned his mercy off because of their rebellion. The prophet Hosea had a daughter whom he named No Mercy as a demonstration of, hey, you better repent or God's going to turn off his mercy. Because, remember, the picture is the father has a daughter. Bloodline, covenant relationship, no mercy. You've broken it off. Your, Your rebellion cannot be overlooked anymore. No one can presume upon God's patience. Nobody. God answers in comfort. And his promise is to reverse his dealings with the people and the nations. Another observation from this passage is that God's forgiveness is free. Because what we have to, what's, what's a stark image here is that God's people did not deserve a second chance with him. Like, all right, we've been good now, so let's get your presence again in the temple and see how we do then. Well, they, for generations, have proven they can't do that. God renews his promise and assurance to rebuild the temple So his presence would be among his people all by his grace. God is giving out. He's giving his presence out of his abundant grace. And when he had every reason to leave Jerusalem and the temple abandoned in ruins, he didn't do it. Because he's a gracious God who forgives sins. And I put most of Psalm 103 in our notes because it's just, I I didn't know what to take out because it's just, made known his ways to Moses and acts to the, his acts to the people of Israel. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. He will not always chide, nor will he keep his anger forever. He does not deal with us according to our sins, nor repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his steadfast love to those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, west, so far does he remove our transgressions from us. As a father shows compassion to his children, so the Lord shows compassion to those who fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. God's anger does not last forever. He stops it so his people feel his love. Now we have hope in this glorious reminder. One, we have not earned God's forgiveness by anything that we've done. And we should not expect or presume upon it, but He has been gracious to us. We have forgiveness because of His grace. We have forgiveness because we trust Him in His grace. His presence with us is never, ever earned. It's free. We also have assurance and confidence that His presence won't leave us when we're ungrateful brats to Him. He's not temperamental waiting for us to, oh, 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 finally, that's it. Nope. Done. God is not postured that way. Romans 5.20 reminds us where sin abounds, His grace mega abounds, super abounds. It abounds all the more. But this also gives us hope because when we struggle with our sin, our remedy is not to do better. We'll never feel God's presence by doing better. We'll, we'll feel his presence by trusting greater. And we need to see him in order to trust him. God will discipline us, but he will not crush us. He will bring his refining fatherly love to us, to, to bring us to, to live in ways that we can feel his love. Jesus said, if you love me, you'll keep my commandments. They're not burdensome. But if you keep my commandments, you'll abide in my love. The rules that God gives us are the mechanism to guard us to experience his love. So when we obey him, we experience his love. But he knows our frame. He knows that we're dust. But take heart, Christian. Take heart. We can't work our way into his grace. Therefore, we can't work our way out of his grace. His grace is free. And it's for us to trust him. We have this assurance because God wins. And that brings us to our third observation. God's judgment on the nations is sure. We see a reversal of his anger. God has been intentional with his anger toward his own people. His judgment on his people for their faithlessness has been brought about to refine their hearts so they remain faithful to him in the future. Hosea 6, who had the daughter named No Mercy, said... Come, let us return to the Lord, for he has torn us, that he may heal us. He has struck us down, and he will bind us up. God has a working of a plan that even though it looks like chaos, he's bringing that back to an order for his exaltation. The patrol had reported that the nations were at ease, and God adds that they've taken their role in judging Israel too far. This doesn't catch God by surprise. He's like, "Hey, uh, hey, I just asked y'all to go like three miles, and y'all went 30." I mean, come on. It doesn't catch God by surprise. He knew that was going to happen because it shows, it reveals the nature of sin. When we're ruled by sin, we keep on going. Sin it takes us farther than we want to go, keeps us longer than we want to stay, and costs more than we ever wanted to pay. That's what sin does. It overcomes us and it begins to rule us. That's why the Apostle Paul says, don't submit yourself again to that yoke of slavery. But trust God and the freedom of his grace. The nations now stand under the judgment of God. God's declaring his judgment on the nations for their sinfulness. They've acted as if they were God. And they're now at ease. They're self-confident. They're presuming upon God. But God will show them who's boss. Who's boss? They will yield their authority and bow their knees to him through repentance or through destruction. They will know he is God because God, he raises up nations and he deposes the very same ones. But we have... A declaration from God that he is jealous for Jerusalem and Zion. Jerusalem was the physical city. Zion was the heavenly place where God exists. I think that's what Abraham was looking at when he looked for a city with foundations whose architect and builder was God. I think it's God's eternal city that we get foretaste, that Jerusalem was supposed to be a foretaste of. But God is jealous in a, in a zealous way. He's zealous for his glory and his name to be known, and he will protect his glory and protect his place. His judgment on sinful nations is a way for him to highlight his special relationship with his people. But God is zealous for his people. That means he's zealous for us who are in Christ. Even now in new life, we have the life that we have in Christ. Uh, the Apostle James, in James 4, 5 says, He yearns jealously over the Spirit that he made to dwell in us. He will fight for his preeminence in our lives. And you know what? I love that about God. He will not allow me to keep on being a knucklehead, trying to, to, trying to create ways uh, to be secure and at peace or an identity apart from him. He will come and annihilate all of that because he says, I love you too much to let you define who you're going to be. So we trust him. He yearns jealously. He will fight, and he fights for his preeminence in our lives because he wants us to know his love the most. That's what's behind our fourth observation. God's presence is established by him. He says his house will be built. God's mercy has returned and now becomes the fuel to accomplish the building of his house. God will establish his presence by his power. He'll stretch out the measuring line, we're told, so the construction will be by his expectations, his standards and rules. That's actually the second vision in chapter 2 deals a lot with the measuring line. But here's the, the truth. God's temple is rebuilt. God's word held true. It came about. But when we think about it, he's promising all this glory to the next temple. And it wasn't that glorious. Haggai even said the the glory of the latter house would be greater than the glory of the former house. The former house was Solomon's. When everything is overlaid with gold, everything, I mean, it just glistened in the sunlight. When they rebuilt it, it wasn't, it was dreary and dull. And they made some improvements to it. Herod the Great made some improvements to it. And, And that's the temple that Jesus was around when his ministry on the earth that's what, it wasn't that great so what is he talking about God's talking about his presence going from a building to hearts that's where his presence ultimately dwells 1 Corinthians three sixteen and 17 do you not know that you are God's temple and that the, God's spirit dwells in you if anyone destroy God's temple God will destroy him for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. God's promise, though it will be partially fulfilled by God's people rebuilding his temple, it will be ultimately filled when the spirit comes on the day of Pentecost to be inside of God's people. There's also a promise. There's a promise of his presence in the house being rebuilt. There's a promise of prosperity. And that the prosperity is to comfort God's people. Another important part of God's returning presence is that prosperity, that blessing. Now, there's today a misapplied aspect to this promise. We need to remember that God's promises have a, they have a now and not yet component to them, all of them. But all of God's promises find their yes and amen in Christ. But there's a now and not yet. We live experiencing God's presence and blessing which are huge comforts to us. We want to experience His blessing over, uh, continually. We want to experience His presence, His blessing always. Those comfort us, but they are foretastes of what we will have in full in heaven. We must not read only one application point in the promise of prosperity. We need to be aware that we're not, we're not having an over-realized eschatology, that the, the eschatology study of end times and who we will be in heaven. Heaven Heaven is so strong. I've said this so often, but heaven is so strong, it's so powerful that it can't be contained just in eternity. It spills over into our today. But that that's not to say, all right, kick the gates of heaven down. I want to experience today. It's like, no, that warms me up for that day. It, it, it wets my appetite for all that I've experienced in heaven. Richard Phillips in his Commentary on this passage says, Although God does not intend for all Christians to abound in the wealth of the world with money, power, or earthly fame, those who walk with God abound in the prosperity of a holy life. Believers are made rich in loyal friendships, useful service, healthy marriages, strong character, and they enjoy God's fatherly provision to meet all their needs. That's prosperity. It doesn't look like we're all taken home. We all have huge bank accounts. It means we understand God, we know God, and he shows up in the different categories of our lives because God's kingdom wants to show up. The fifth observation is that God's kingdom advances. And we see this vision of horns and craftsmen, and this, I think, is a picture of how God's kingdom will advance and does advance. The next vision of these horns and craftsmen, it's... An image of how God will judge the nations that he had just used to scatter Israel. The four horns uh, represent nations and leaders of those nations. They probably don't represent four distinct nations as they do the four directions of a compass. God's people have been scattered all over the world in every direction. And his promise is to gather them while judging the nations. God will judge the nations with the craftsmen. The significance of the craftsmen craftsmen is is in their comparison to the horns. Usually, uh, national leaders come with pomp and circumstance. They come with a bit of majesty associated with them. They come with some glit and glamour. The craftsmen, everybody would have read that as just ordinary dudes. Nothing special about them. And I think that's exactly what God wanted us to know that the kingdom advances through the ordinary, not the glit and glamour. God's kingdom, God's his, his advancement is ordinary and an ordinary people. He advances his kingdom through the obedience, the ordinary obedience of his people. When we live under his authority, we show an onlooking world the authority of Jesus. When we live surrendered, we show an onlooking world where true happiness is really found. It's ordinary. God calls the ordinary to accomplish the extraordinary in the advancement of his kingdom. And it's, it's, it's amazing that God can use our broken and feeble efforts to accomplish something majestic for his kingdom. God's command, God commands our obedience in order to exalt his salvation given freely by his grace. Both are required. Our ordinary everyday obedience and His grace. So, believer, God uses you in your boring, ordinary life that you daydream about escaping. God uses you in the ordinary dealings of life. School, wiping snotty noses at a desk, ordinary. God uses you in the ordinary dealings of life to advance his kingdom across the earth. Do you hear that? That should redeem everything about the course of our days, because nothing is wasted. Even if you're by yourself cleaning your house, the angels see you and you're advancing his kingdom. There's armies of horses swirling about in the unseen, accomplishing God's kingdom advancement in your heart and then through you in the ordinary processes of life. And when we love and serve in ordinary ways, we advance the kingdom. When we love and serve, we point to an ordinary man who accomplished the extraordinary. Who's the ordinary man? It's the one that was standing among the myrtle trees. Remember how Jesus was considered ordinary when he ministered on the earth? People questioned his credentials all the time. His hometown, the Pharisees, the scribes, who are you? Even Pontius Pilate, who are you? They say you're a king. They constantly questioned his credentials. He was ordinary physically. He was ordinary most of his life as a carpenter, a craftsman. His ministry was ordinary in its scope, not reaching beyond... 20 miles in a period of three and a half years. That's not worldwide, international ministry. It was ordinary. Yet, He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is the man in the midst of the myrtle trees. He is the one in the midst of the new life in God's people. He is God among His people. Where John says He he came and He dwelt among us in John 1. He tabernacled among us. He dwelled with us. He gives us new life. He deposits His Spirit in us and everybody who calls on Him in faith. And His presence is now in you to never, ever leave. Even in heaven, we get to experience his presence in us. It's not like he takes his presence out and we're just around him. No, he's still in us. And we experience the fullness and the thrill of being in his presence with him for all eternity. Now, here's the hope for us. Because we struggle to feel God's presence. That's our struggle. How do I I feel his presence? Now, we, we could be using God's things in a way he hasn't told us to do. So we could be reading the Bible from a perspective of trying to gain something from God rather than see God. We have to use God's things God's way in order to experience his presence. But we also can't substitute inferior joys because God, God in his patience, he will, uh, he'll, he'll, He'll give us opportunity to see if that inferior joy will ever rise. It never does. And finally, when we're like, God, where are you? He says, I've been here the whole time. Uh, you've been a little ridiculous because you're trying to go after this rather than trust me. But he wants us to make sure that we don't, we don't have an appetite for that anymore in our appetite. It's him. We have to remember, when we struggle to feel God's presence, we need to remind ourselves of the truth. His presence already in us that's true we can't lose it we can't sin our way uh, sin enough to get him out of it he he makes a covenant with us and he secures us learning to sense his presence in our lives is the process of knowing his love his grace and his forgiveness Do we want to sense his presence remind him how for, uh, have him remind you of his forgiveness of your sins Because when we're reminded of our forgiveness, love for him is right there, and we experience his presence. That's when Jesus said, abide in my love, and I will abide in you. God is with us for God to be in us. Ephesians 1 Christ in you, you have the spirit who was there at the day of, uh, through the days of creation. The spirit who hovered over the expanses and God said, let there be light. The spirit who rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. Take comfort, take heart, because listen, the man riding on a red horse is coming back on a white horse. And what a glorious day that will be when we all get to heaven to see him as he is and to be with him in his presence. Nothing obscuring, nothing distracting, no sinful cravings. We are with him. But we get to experience the foretaste and the glory of that today. Father, I ask that you would please give us a comprehension, a vast deep knowledge, a a vast, deep experience of your presence, Lord. And I pray that we would sense your love in such a way that we would be convinced it will not go from us. Help us experience your presence every day, every day as we wait and look for that day that you will come and gather us all to be before your throne forevermore.